Brian Winhurst and the Hoop Collective is presented by YouTube TV. Try it free today at youtube.com slash NBA 23. New users only. Terms apply. Cancel anytime. Hello, welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're doing on Thursday afternoon. Joining me from New York City, where it's hazy and smoky, Tim Bonteps. Sure is. Hello, everybody. It's a beautiful day here in Miami where uh, Van McMahon is uh, down the street from me. We just watched the uh, Nuggets take game three last night. Mr. McMahon, how are you? Howdy, partners. Hey, I noticed it was hazy and smoky in certain parts of Denver when we were there as well. (laughs) That's correct. Especially after game one, in the immediate aftermath of game one. Not so much after game two. Um, And our special guest here previewing game four of the NBA Finals, joining us from his childhood home. In Richmond, Virginia. You know, we didn't say this, but George Niang, who joined us earlier this week, he was at his childhood home in Massachusetts. So we're on a roll here. <laughs> it was childhood home, coach of the Utah Jazz. I don't think I should call you first year coach. You're, you, you're like in the summer after your freshman year, Will Hardy. Welcome. Second year jazz coach, Will Hardy. <laughs> was it Will Hardy or Will Kessler? Which is it? Oh, man. It, we'll stick with Will Hardy for now. I get enough, <laughs> I get enough crap about Walker. Um, but thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm sure ESPN has called him many times Kessler Walker. Uh, I'm sure that's uh, one of my favorite things of the year was when Will was in Toronto and then coming to New York the next day on a back to back and (laughs) believe the jazz won a game in Toronto. And Uh uh, there was an AP story that in the lead called Will Hardy, Will Kessler. So yeah, I came was, up to him after the game and said, a, "You change your can't you change it up to him in New York?" Said, "You change your name, Will." Yeah, oh, I, I, I got alerted to that in quite sarcastic manner because it was on our website. We got it fixed. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like getting crap from the the opposing team though during the game. Um, we had a couple a couple instances this year where guys on the court would make comments like, "I'm yelling something at the team," and they would turn and go, "Oh my god, I thought you were Walker for a second." Uh, <laughs> Well, I met Walker last week in Denver for the first time. My, I know this is, how about this for analysis, Will? My God, is he tall? I don't, I don't know <laughs> what he's listed as, but he's got to be over seven foot tall. Is he like seven two? I would say, I mean, I would say he's for sure seven feet. He's definitely above seven feet. We'll, we'll give him seven one um, okay. in the orthotics, but I'm not sure uh, if he's a full <laughs> right. seven two, but he's a, got a big frame. He's um, when you spend a lot of time with him, you're reminded how young he is. There's a chance that he's still growing a little bit. Um, right. But he has a he has real, real size, um, good length, and you know, just working on getting stronger now. He's also the most wholesome kid in the NBA. I'm mean, asking Joker. I just want to ask, how are you doing? I said, dude, keep your day job. We're not doing this little, <laughs> little you know, lovey dovey crap. Yeah. You're not cut out. I actually like media. that because. You know, so what, what McMahon is describing is Walker came and like was like a member of the media for like his own website. It was just one of those things. And we're happy to see him. Jokic has no time for the media anyway. Like he's <laughs> he's under there under protest. And he gave he gave Walker like a passing glance, like, okay, I recognize that you're a peer, but then just wanted to get through the questions. It's like with all of everything else, no special treatment, which I I, I respected that. I, um, I just think that at some point, probably four or five years now, when Walker can actually grow a mustache, he should. Because if you're going to be the sheriff, you've got to have some kind of like, you know, intimidating facial hair to go with it. So hopefully at some point he's able to do that. Aren't you like the biggest Walker Kessler fan on the planet, though? 
Absolutely. I am the Utah Jazz Big Man Whisperer and have been for years and years and years. I, I guess not the biggest because, well, I don't have a vote, but I was not one of the two to give him a Rookie of the Year vote, although I did think he was a, a solid candidate. I thought that was, I thought, I thought uh, Mr. Ben Caro in Orlando had a pretty convincing case, but I, well, I do think the kid's got a hell of a future, that's for sure. Well, true or false, Timothy McMahon once got a pedicure with Rudy Gobert in Salt Lake City. I mean, it has to be true. It's true. <laughs> it was the first pedicure of my life. Honestly, my my right big toe, my my stepson's referred to it as my zombie toe. I think it might be a, an after effect of, of, uh, of that pedicure. I think it's a pedicure that went wrong. Is this what you guys talk about on this podcast? Yeah, yeah like we, said, we talk about the man's toe. <laughs> Trust me, McMahon always brings it back to himself one way or the other. Way. We, were we spent 10 minutes talking to George Niang about uh, NESCAC uh, inter, inter rivalries the other day because McMahon Listen, went to he military to go school to a, in Maine. So, he, not a military school character development, and clearly sure. it worked. That's that's what I, way to I had the game winning touchdown <laughs> against his school my senior year. You don't think I I'm gonna bask in that glory? Like yeah, I said, now we're doing it again. It's just always back to McMahon every time. Uh, George every said time. that there were, he found some tape of that, and there was an uncalled hold on that play. <laughs> it was a quarterback sneak, there, there wasn't that much opportunity for holding. That's that you stick to I that basically story. fell forward. All right, let's let's uh, so let's actually anyway, talk to our guests and not about. Band, please. Anyway, well, uh, this I, this has to have been a, a, a crazy twelve months for you. You got hired um, after the playoff run that the uh, that the Celtics had last year. You were on the Celtics bench last year, um, so right about now is when you were uh, you know becoming the Jazz uh, head coach. Uh, what has this last twelve months been like? Uh, from when you were in the finals, right now you would you were you know in the in the thick of it. You were actually up to one in the finals with the Celtics last year to now, you know, being entrenched as, uh, as a coach, you had a great first year. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been a lot, honestly. Um, you know, when you're in the middle of the playoffs and then the finals, it's hard to think about anything else. Um, but you know, the interview processes for these jobs get going. And so I did my first round interview in a hotel room in San Francisco on zoom. Um, and so it was kind of hard to feel like you were given your full energy to like the interview process because you're worried about the team, uh, at the time, um, you know, then you fast forward the finals ends, which was, you know, really disappointing for all of us. Um, you know, I've been a part of losing in the finals before. And like when a team pours everything into it, there's also just the general fatigue at the end, you're upset and you're tired. And to go from that to pivoting to getting the jazz job, which was super exciting. Um, you know, there's so much work that has to be done. Like you have to, first of all, move, um, my wife and my two little girls, it's like, okay, now I have to figure out how to move from Boston to Salt Lake city. But you're also just thrown right in the mix in terms of like hiring a staff and getting to know everybody uh, in the program and, um, trying to make sure that you're, you're giving them your full attention. Um, and then you're at summer league, which was like a whirlwind and a job fair and the whole thing kind of wrapped into one. Um, and there's a lot of decisions. Like I, I told my wife, I said, I think the weirdest thing about getting the job is you go overnight, you go from being an MBA assistant where like no one really cares what you think about anything to now <laughs> the next day, everyone cares what you think about everything. 
<laughs> and you're supposed to be an expert on like, you know, what color should we paint the training room? And you're like, I don't care what color you paint the training room. <laughs> like, surely there is someone more qualified than me to pick that color. Um, but it, so it's a really weird uh, shift that just really happens overnight. Um, and you're trying to give enough energy to that as well as making sure your family's taken care of. Um, you know, the season honestly is probably the easiest part because you just get caught in the routine. Not that being a head coach is easy, but once you kind of understand what to expect after the first 20, 25 games, you know, like we all do, and you guys are probably the same, you just, the rhythm of the season kind of saves you. You're just going. Um, and so it was, it, it was a lot, you know, you can't simulate the feeling of responsibility that you have when you get one of these jobs and you feel responsible for everything and everyone, and you think everything kind of reflects on you. Um, you know, the losses are way harder to take when you're a head coach than they were when you're an assistant and they're hard to take when you're an assistant. Um, so it's been a lot. I think I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, currently to, to not be moving. Um, you know, we moved, my family's moved the last two summers, you know, we moved from San Antonio to Boston and then from Boston to Utah. So it's actually really nice to be able to decompress and think back about the season. And, um, you know, I'm kind of in the process now of trying to figure out what I really think, um, you know, <laughs> what worked, what didn't work, uh, this, I like this. I didn't like as much as I thought because you have all these grand plans and ideas and it all sounds good when you draw it on the board and then you get, you actually get the job and you have to put it in practice and, you know, not everything goes as easily as you think. When you're, when you're interviewing that, for a job, well, you got another job and you're in the playoffs, like, is it expected that you're like, okay, what we should do here is we should put Mike Conley in double drag action. Like, are you expected to like have a presentation for like how the jazz should play while you're game planning against Steph Curry? Like I've always wondered, like, how is that supposed to work? Yeah. I've been a part of a couple processes and everyone's a little bit different. I think first and foremost, the jazz were super respectful of the fact that I was in the finals. And so from a time standpoint, like they understood when game days were travel days were when we had meetings and stuff and they weren't trying to back me into a corner. Um, but yeah, there's elements of the, of the interview where you are talking about the current roster and, things you see that you like, uh, maybe things that you would like to change, um, concepts on both sides of the ball. And so it is weird because you have to step totally outside of it. Um, I think the hardest part sometimes is when you're analyzing the film of the what's going on there currently because you're not in the room. You don't really know what they're being told. You don't know what the points of emphasis really are. You can make an educated guess based on what you see on the film, but um, it's really hard to not have all the context and to be making those those uh, assumptions and and calls on what they should be doing. But um, yeah, it, it was weird to kind of put your brain on two different things. Uh, but the Jazz were super respectful of of me and and where I was at, so um, they didn't make it any harder than it needed to be. Well, there's just a few things that have changed with the Jazz since you got there, like the entire starting five, for, you know, for mm -hmm. one. That's really, um, <laughs> and so like obviously this was a, a massive roster renovation year, right? And mm -hmm. when usually when it's that kind of teardown, you know, you guys are and people expect you guys to be in the in the Wimby Derby, extremely competitive for you know right up until the trade deadline took 
<clears throat> a more long-term outlook after that. And now you go into this summer, you know Larry Markinen is an all-star. You know Walker Kessler is, you know, an all-rookie guy, you know, another guy you can build around. Three picks this year, picks galore moving forward, cap space. What would you describe, and I know this is really a Danny Ainge, Justin Zanuck question, but I'm asking you because they're not on here. What would you describe as the Jazz kind of uh, outlook and, and approach goals going into uh, this transaction cycle? Yeah, I think first and foremost, like we have to get a lot better. I think because the expectations were what they were going into last year, we overachieved or whatever people want to say. And it's like, oh, look at them. Like, that's cool. They're not, they don't suck as bad as we thought. But we didn't make the playoffs. And we didn't make the play in. And so, like, for us, we need to get a lot better. And that's collectively – you know, Danny and Justin are obviously super experienced and, you know, we're having conversations all the time about the three first round draft picks and then the impending free agency with cap space. And how do we try to make our team better? You know, there's elements where you have to think long term, like what types of roster moves are good for the, the team to be sustainable. Um, that word's used a lot in the NBA. But there's also like we want to be better this year. And like, first and foremost, that's our goal. And I think when you go back to the individuals, like Lowry had a fantastic season and Walker showed himself to be a, a solid player as a rookie, but there's no guarantee that you get better. Like it doesn't just happen. And so like everybody had a chip on their shoulder going into last year, you guys, not you three, but the media and people's expectations kind of made that easy for us because it was easy to pick at our team and say, Hey, Everybody thinks you suck. So let's go prove that you don't. And we, we had a collective going in the last year too, just to be, be clear. Well, thanks for clearing that up. That's really great. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, good job. Yeah, that's what a feel good thing we're doing. <laughs> and so like that was, it was easy to, to pick at that. And we had this collective chip on our shoulder and then you end the year. And there's a lot of people that are saying like, Hey, you guys had a great year. Like that was really awesome. But that's not what we want to be. Like, we don't want to be the feel good team. that doesn't make the playoffs. And so now, you know, the real work begins, you know, now we have to take a, a big step and Danny and Justin and myself and Ryan, like we all understand there's work to be done in terms of building the team, but there's also work to be done with the guys that we have, you know, Colin Sexton just finished a, his first year coming back off of a huge injury. And like, it was a massive success for us that he got through the season healthy, didn't have any issues with the knee Obviously, had to miss some games with some hamstring stuff, but like all in all, he got to the finish line. Taylor Horton Tucker had some good moments throughout the year, especially at the end when he got some really consistent playing time. That's great. Ochai Baji, same thing, like starts in the G League, gets real minutes at the end. Okay, like you're going on the right track, but now we have to actually take a big step forward and get a lot better. So our mindset going into the summer is like, how do we get better? Like we're not trying to drag this out into a super long thing. You know, Danny and Justin are great about they're not impulsive and they're not going to do things that they don't think make sense. But I would say our collective mindset is like we're trying to be active in all those fronts. Well, one way you guys were pretty active and you were specifically was helping Lowry take a massive jump last year. And, you know, McMahon was galvanting around Europe last summer and watching Lowry play in uh, Eurobasket where he's obviously playing great. The general reaction to that was, well, yeah, a lot of guys go back and play with their home country. They play great in the summer, but that never really translates to the NBA. And it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to do that with the Jazz. You obviously unlocked a ton of that stuff 
with him this past season. He had a fantastic year. So I was curious as you were kind of going through the process of getting ready for last year, watching him play, getting to know him. How were you able to take what he was doing with the Finnish national team and unlock that with the Jazz and allow him to really take a massive step forward last season? Yeah, I think because the team was brand new and we didn't have any pre-existing concepts about our group, there was no like scar tissue of like this. We we tried that before and it didn't work. Um, it was really freeing as a coach because we got to try a bunch of stuff. And so training camp, we sort of treated it for the whole team, but Lowry in particular, because we had watched him, you know, I was watching the FIBA stuff too and going like, mm-hmm. I've never seen Lowry marketing in the NBA, get a rebound, dribble it up the court and then play a pick and roll and then drive to the basket and get fat. Like I've never seen him do that. So training camp for us was about like, all right, how can we put these guys in a structure, but let them play some and let's learn about them just like they're trying to learn what we're trying to do. And as camp went on and then preseason went on and then the first 10, 15 games went on, we're watching Lowry going like, dude, he's doing this every day. It's not, he didn't have like a hot week. It's like he's done this every day from the very beginning. And so then, hey, let's try this. And then I would go talk to Lowry and the staff would explain something and we would try it. And he was pretty successful. Um, I think we just tried not to have too many preconceived notions about our guys and our team. And I think that was made easy for us because the team was brand new and no one knew what to think of it. Um, but on the individual level, like we didn't want to say, Hey, this guy's always done this. So, or he can't do that. I think that happens a lot in the NBA. Like we talk a lot about what guys can't do. Um, and sometimes you just need a little bit of opportunity. Like not every NBA team is set up the same. There's context to everything. Um, you know, when you're playing alongside a, a superstar player, maybe you are in more of a support role off the ball, not as involved. And that makes total sense. But with us, we didn't really have that person to start the year that we had to build things around. Um, So we kind of tried to let everybody expand their, their lane a little bit. Well, and you mentioned earlier how uh, Bond temps to ask about Larry marketing. That was very brave of you. Yeah. Bond temps, the biggest, the biggest marketing (laughs) basher. Hey man. Hey, look, you're if a you're not going to apologize, no, if you're not going to offer a full-throated apology to Larry Markkinen for besmirching his good name for years and years and years, you can't ask about him. <laughs> well, I asked about him specifically because he was way better than I ever thought he was going to be. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. If only starting your fitness journey was as easy as starting this podcast. The truth is, all the lift big, get big, and beach body ready in three weeks pressure stops most of us from even starting. And starting is what matters most. It's everything. Wherever you're beginning and wherever you want to be, Peloton encourages you to just start. With thousands of classes to get you moving and doing what you can, even if that's just a 10-minute low-impact class, they have those too. And when you're ready, take it up a gear with a 30-minute live DJ ride. Start with Peloton and find instructors that will keep you motivated to stay on your fitness journey. Learn the basics and build from there. Remember, doing something is everything. Get started with a Peloton bike or Bike Plus rental at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Terms apply. 
The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You were talking before, Will, about trying to get used to being a head coach. We all have been around a lot of NBA games, and typically the head coach does his media, and then he goes away, and then he comes out when the game starts. And I noticed that several games I was at with you last year, you'll just be out on the court, hanging out, wandering around, talking to people (laughs) in a way that no other head coach ever does. Wandering around. (laughs) Well, you look like a guy who didn't have anything to do was trying to figure out what to do with yourself. As part of what what was sort of, it seemed like you didn't really know how to handle your your time before the games now that you were in a head coach. I was just curious what kind of what that process has been like for you. I mean, as an assistant, you know, you're out on the court basically for two and a half hours before the game working guys out. You have a routine and, you know, I've been on the first bus to the arena every game my entire NBA career. And now I get here and they're like, you're on the third bus. And I'm like, the what? <laughs> like, it's just me and like our PR guy and like two vets who work out late. So when we were at home, like I would do media and we've done the prep. Like we've we've already done all the prep work on the game. We've thought about it. We've talked to the team about it. We've done a walkthrough in the morning. At that point in time, outside of finding out that somebody is a late scratch, the work's done. And like, I just know my own personality. Like if I sit in my little cave by myself, I'll just start like making up new problems or panicking about, well, what if they do this? And like, it's just unhealthy for me. And then ultimately will be unhealthy for the rest of the staff. So I don't know, like, I like being on the court. I always have, you know, I get to say hi to people that I know, and I'm trying to not be any different than I always have been. I know that there's parts of the job that make that impossible, but Like, I don't want to become this recluse head coach that no one ever sees. I mean, from little things like at the arena to like, I mean, I still go to a coffee shop in the morning to get coffee before I go to the facility, even though we have coffee at the facility, because like, that's what I always did. Like, that that doesn't seem like a fiscally responsible decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you may be right. Those that four dollars will add up over time and I'll regret (laughs) it at some point. But I, I just I always did that. And so. I would go to the grocery store on the way home. My wife's like, Hey, what are we doing for dinner? Pick, can you pick this up? And like, I still try to do those things because that feels normal to me. I don't want to go into this mode of like, I just like sit in my office and stew for an hour and a half after I talk to you guys, because that's what head coaches do. Hey, thanks a lot. Cause now my wife, the IT department listens to this pot on a regular basis. She's going to be like, Oh, so an NBA head coach has time to stop by the grocery <laughs> store on a regular basis, but you don't. So That's I right. really appreciate it. So, right Will, now. you mentioned FIBA. You worked for Greg Popovich for, I think, about a decade with the Spurs before you went to the mm-hmm. Celtics. But you also were in Tokyo uh, with the uh, with the Olympics in 2021. It was the 2020 Olympic. Right. So Popovich did something. You know, th- th- those Olympics – Look, I was there, so I have a little bit more of an insight on it. The games were playing played in the middle of the night. Popovich did something in that, in that Olympics that nobody remembers, and but I want to bring it up with you. In the semifinals, Team USA was playing Australia. 
Australia had spent 10 years preparing itself for that game. They'd never won a medal. All their guys had been with the, the team like 10 years. They had beaten the U.S. the last two times they played. Once They, they were exhibitions, but they still beat them. Mm-hmm. And you guys were down like 12-ish points, 12, 14 points, which in a FIBA game is like 18 or 20 because it's a shorter game. Mm-hmm. And Gregory Popovich called for a triangle and two defense. Yes, which Jeff Van Gundy later told me you guys went over and practice about for like one minute. Yep. And now I will point out before I turn this over to you that it did help having Kevin Durant nailing threes at the other end, (laughs) but Greg Popovich called a triangle and two in an elimination moment in the, in the, in the Olympics. And it helped turn the entire game around and save the opportunity to win the gold medal, which you guys won. I just want to know like, what you thought about that moment, like, and in, in the scheme of what you've seen Pop do over the years? Yeah, I think obviously incredibly ballsy in the moment, especially when it's something that you don't see a ton of. Like, going zone would have been ballsy in its own way, but to a lot of basketball people, it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of the logical next step. Man's not working. Let's mix up the rhythm of the game and go zone. But we had talked about the triangle in two at shoot around um, and the practice for the, for that game as something that we might go to, but you're right. We didn't spend a ton of time on it. There was a couple of concepts that we wanted to cover with the team, but the guys seemed okay with it. Like they understood why. And even in that five minutes or so that we went over it with the team, like you could tell there was some buy-in from the players. So I didn't think that we were ever going to actually go to it. I thought it was one of those things that we all are like, oh, this is good to talk about, but we're never going to do. But Pop has always been somebody that has wanted to do unique things. I think sometimes the roster that we had in San Antonio and the success of the team, you didn't always have to go to those things. But he he always has the number of times as assistants that we've talked him out of doing crazy things that he wants to do is way more than you would think. Um, like we're the timid ones and he's like, no, we should do this. And we're going like, no, it's the second quarter. Relax. Like let's just stick with it. He's made two threes. It's not the end of the world. Like he shoots 31% from three, but you know, he's been in so many big games in so many playoff series and a lot of elimination games. And so, you know, he just has the the feel for those moments. Obviously, if it didn't work, we're talking about it in a very different way. But he would have I been skewered he, if you guys totally didn't win the gold medal, even though it was a hard mountain to climb. Totally. And I think I really do think that he felt the buy in from the team because we all kind of did. Like when we did the walkthrough, they weren't like looking at each other going like, what are we talking about? Like you have guys like Draymond chiming in. Oh yeah. And if they go here, we do this. And you're going like, wait, they're actually talking about this. Like if we actually did it. So yeah, I mean, credit to pop, obviously the stuff on the offensive end, like you mentioned was super helpful, but you know, those games were agonizing on a personal level because, because of the COVID protocols and the number of people you could have behind the bench, there was a group of us that what didn't go to the games until the gold medal game. So Imagine back at the hotel. So we've done all the prep. We've been in all the meetings, all the practices done. Back at the hotel, it's myself, Jeff Van Gundy, Ime Udoka, and Chip England, all in a room watching the game on a big screen, yelling at the TV, just every (laughs) game. And I remember when uh, Australia scored, we called timeout. 
they're up like 12 and Patty's flexing and like Joe Engel. And you can just see like the emotion coming out of Australia. Like, Oh my God, we're going to do it. And it's like the second quarter. I remember feeling like, dude, are we really about to get blown out by Australia in this game? Because you're right. They had beat us two times before. And there's that little piece of your brain that tells you like, do they have our number for some weird reason? Like, what is going on? But then we got to halftime. The score was more manageable. And yeah, th- those games, like feeling like you really have zero control. Where as an assistant, yeah, you're not the head coach. But when you're on the bench, you're in the timeout huddles. Like, you do feel like you're kind of a part of the thing. When you're back at the hotel an hour away from the arena, just watching on the screen like anybody else, it was agonizing. But we did get to go to the gold medal game, which was great. Yeah, I just remember that game. Durant was great. He was great the whole tournament. And like, we're talking to him after the game and it's like, um, Hey, Kevin, yeah, you scored like, you know, 28 points. You saved, uh, saved the Americans. You're going to have a chance to play for the gold medal. Oh yeah. Before you go about that $250 million extension you signed today. Cause that was the day he signed. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, he was like turning away. Hey, wait a minute. Excuse me, sir. About that super max <clears throat> extension. Uh, that was a wild day. So let me ask you the other side of it. You were here in Miami as part of the staff mm-hmm. game six. 2013. So obviously has a happy ending because the next year you guys are celebrating, but we've heard a lot of about that night. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the look on RC Buford's face standing in the hallway after the game. What do you remember about that night? It was as quiet. I think as I've ever seen that group, not that it was an overly loud team, um, with the personalities of our our best players at the time. But you could just tell there was a real shock of like, oh my God, did that really just happen? Because we had, you know, we had two opportunities to make a pair of free throws to make it a four-point game and both of them were split. You know, we had the the timeout before where it's like, are we going to go small and try to switch or are we going to keep Tim on the court? And you take Tim off the court because you want to switch and then you don't get a rebound and Tim's going like, well, I would have gotten the rebound. Not necessarily true, but there was just a lot of like, there. nobody was second guessing anything, but everybody was just totally stunned. And then we had the dinner, you know, Pop has always been huge on the team dinners and he was moving around the restaurant and trying to do everything in his power to kind of bring some life back into the team. And I think he did a fantastic job. But yeah, that was a... I'm really thankful to ESPN that you guys only replay that shot like 3000 times a year. <laughs> it's so only, it's only in the opening. None of us have to see it. Yeah. None of us have to see it ever, but it, it, it has a happy ending. But like the funny part about that quote unquote happy ending is the 2013, 14 season for me without question is the least amount of fun I've ever had. Hmm. Like until we won, because it was, because I was hanging was, over you the whole time. Yeah. And everybody was pissed. And, de- and determined and all those things. But like, it's such a long road to get all the way back there. Like you lose at the beginning of the next season, the feeling in your mind and heart and all that is like, let's just play the heat right now, seven games right now. And like, let's get it off our chest and write the ship and all those things. But you have to wait six months, eight months to get even an opportunity. And you're going through Only the playoffs. Took five. And, yeah. I mean, you're going through the, you're going through the playoffs. <laughs> you're going to then you get to the playoffs and you're going through the series. And then it gets to the point where we beat Oklahoma city in the Western conference finals. And our team wanted Miami to win. Like we have to play Miami in the finals. We can't have them lose. And we play somebody else that it won't ever be right. So yeah, like that night and then into the the next season, it was really hard because you could just tell that like, 
the guys were never going to get over it. And I think, you know, for a lot of them and us, like we still aren't over it. Like you would have liked to have just won in 2013. And then who knows if we win in 14 after that, probably not would be the odds, but yeah, that, uh, that is a moment that I don't love, but we have Sorry. to deal with it a lot. It's, okay. <laughs> it's all right. I'm all right, sure well, there has of, to be some highlight of flight of 14 we could mix in there, right? Like, is there some the Manu dunk on Chris <laughs> uh, Bosch? How about something? the how about the way you guys ran offense for five games and made them go to their knees and cry for mama? How about that? You remember those games? <laughs> well, and have those half were, the team retire after game five, too. <laughs> those, those were good. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, uh, you, you, it was a decent team that you put together the following year. And uh, yeah, no uh, doubt. The, yeah. Uh, all right. Speaking of Miami finals, we saw an iconic game. It, you know, we're glad to talk to you about your life. We'd like to keep doing it, but there was an NBA finals going on. <laughs> uh, it was pretty, uh, a pretty iconic game that was played game three, the biggest performance in the history of the Denver Nuggets franchise. I think I can mm-hmm. safely say. Um, and, you know, I'm going to say that I think that two of the best coaches in the NBA are doing work in this series. Also, um, I have tenured. Yes. That's yes. a great point. Um, you know, I'm just going to say, you know, Will, I'm going to say about 2007 or eight, you know, I, I knew Michael Malone for that long and uh, uh, some, some Cavs assistant coaches had gotten an opportunities for jobs and he had, he couldn't even get an interview. And like, he called me and he was like, how come I can't get an interview for a head coaching job? And I talked to him about it and, you know, what I thought he needed to do and, and, you know, then, you know, he, he jumped a couple of jobs and was able to get in a position to get, to get a job, you know, a few years later in Sacramento. And then he got fired in a, what most people thought in the moment was a very unfair way. And I remember talking to him, at, you know, in the weeks after he got fired and he was like, I'll never get another job. I spent my whole career trying to get this job and now I'm out and I go, no, Michael, that's not the way it's going to be. You're going to get another chance, which of course he did. You and so I think I did call him Mike at the time, but I, I don't want to go over that ground anymore. So to see him go to work these last three days, recognizing that Eric Spolstra is absolutely at the top of the profession right now. And what, I mean, like the, the Nuggets coaches are like, they, they are like, they react to Spolstra, like a, a great scorer does a great defender. Like he's just always there. Like they're like, wake up and they're like, Oh my God, what did Spo, what does Spo have planned for us today? Oh my God. What sort of wrinkles are you going to throw at us? And the Nuggets coaching staff, the three days leading up to game three, the way they, the way Michael ripped the team down and then built them back up, got them ready, went to the game plan that featured the two-man game. Like they Spolstra had kind of gotten them out of it a little bit and they kind of got out of it a little bit themselves. They go back to the two-man game and they hit it hard. The mm-hmm. most, uh, I think they had 15 dribble handoffs in the game for Murray. I think uh, according to Second Spectrum, I think uh, Jokic set more screens from for Murray in Game Three than he had in any game this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously it was Jokic and Murray who got it done. But I thought tremendous job by the Nuggets coaching staff, Coach Malone, responding to the challenge from my viewpoint that uh, they got put down in front of him after Game Two. Yeah, I mean a, a ton of credit to him and their staff. You know, series are. this is why the playoffs in the NBA are so fun because there really becomes the, the quote unquote, you know, game within the game, the chess match, the adjustments, all that stuff. And then sometimes as a coach, like you have to, and as a staff, you've got to be willing to say like, how are we willing to lose? 
like if we lose, like how am I willing to walk off going like, all right, we we did what we wanted to do. And I'm happy that Jamal and Jokic had the ball as much as they did, because I think that was our best chance the way that Miami had been guarding us. You know, they're, they made it a point that they were going to feature those guys heavily, not just in the action, but like Jokic usually sits out at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And then last night you come out of the fourth quarter and he's on the court and you're going like, oh, like Malone is really like, he is ramming this down our throat. Like, no, I'm not taking them out. We're going to this. This is how we're going to win this game. You guys can rest after the game. And it's it's a lot of credit to him and it's a credit to those two guys. Like they are, I had the, I don't know if it's pleasure. I had the opportunity to be on the Spurs staff when we played Denver in the playoffs in the first round and lost them in seven games. And those two guys in a two-man game and you watch them throughout the regular season, they just know how to squeeze the game. And they're so good at reading the couple of ways you can guard the two-man game. Um, they clearly have a great understanding between the two of them. And it's it's really fun to watch from this perspective. It's it's awful to coach against because there really aren't that many choices because they can make you pay in so many different ways. You know, I think it's it's great also to see Jamal clearly healthy. You know, we played them opening night this year in Utah. And you could just like the Jamal Murray that we're seeing now versus the Jamal Murray that we saw that first night, just physically, it's not even close. And that's a credit to him and all the work he's put in. But, you know, I'm intrigued to see now game four, like what is, is Mike Malone going to stay with that? What's Spo going to do to counter it? Like, cause now having been in those conversations before, you know, it, it worked well for Denver. And so like, do you stick with what's working or do you try to predict the adjustment and adjust against that initially? Um, you know, this is the fun part. Well, and then on the other end of the floor, Malone, after game one, his thing was, we didn't play well. We gave up 16 wide open threes. They just didn't hit mm-hmm. them. Game two, they hit them. You know, they go mm-hmm. 17 to 35 from three. Clearly that message got through in game three. You know, their priority was game plan discipline on the defensive end. We cannot have uh, you know, assignment errors that that give the Struces and Robinsons and Vincents, you know, clean looks at threes. You know, obviously the ball is going to be in Jimmy Butler's hands. You know, Bam's going to get a lot of touches. H- how can you generate open threes for your, your role players if if the Nuggets are going to be that solid in, in their defensive game plan execution? Yeah, I think it's it's hard if a team decides they're going to make your best player shoot the ball a lot it becomes hard because then you have to try to find ways to manufacture shots for your quote-unquote role players it's something that Spo has obviously done a tremendous job of for a long time Duncan Robinson and now Max Struess being guys who mm-hmm. whatever their reputation was before in Miami they found a way to manufacture offense for those two guys Gabe Vincent has a little bit of that as well obviously um you know Martin played so well in the Eastern mm-hmm. Conference Finals like, Probably should have been the MVP of that series. Yeah. I don't want to get in between you guys on this. <laughs> I was warned not to go there. Uh, shout out again, man just continues yes, to bring yeah, the shout same out things up over and over again. So yeah. this is what he PR does. PR prep, don't go there. Um, <laughs> so like it it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult because it's a uh it's a long way to 110 points. And that's really where we're at. I mean, these games are being played much slower pace mm-hmm. than we're used to in the regular season. So maybe the points isn't actually 110, but you know, the way that Denver guarded them last night, like they made it pretty clear they were going to try to eliminate the role players. Mm-hmm. And even though Miami has shot the ball well from a percentage standpoint from three, 
you know, that that's where Jokic and Murray's two man game draws so much attention that some of the other guys are still able to score. But when you look at the stats, like nobody else on the Nuggets has really scored that much in the series. Um, like there's only three guys averaging double figures. Yeah, Christian Brown had the 15 last night. It's kind of like, whoa, where'd that come from? Yeah, and he got some of them in transition. Like it wasn't yeah, like they were like breakouts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be, you know, this next game obviously has such big implications because of the three one and going back to Denver. Like, what are they gonna do? I would think that Spo has always done such a good job of finding unique ways to get his role players shots. And he also has shown a willingness time and time again to do something that you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Like they could practice a new action, a new set over these next two days and and put it in in a finals game. Like he's that's why the Denver coaching staff reacts to Spo. Like, you know, Brian was saying, like because he's shown a willingness over the years to do things that are off the wall and that he hasn't done before. So I would expect an adjustment from him and, and they'll, they'll do a better job of trying to get those guys shots. And then, you know, Jimmy is Jimmy. He's going to put his force on the game. Like he's not going to, he's going to go down swinging for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, it's going to be fun to watch. Well, you, you mentioned it before. Well, when you were talking about being in the middle of these series and kind of deciding how to adjust and when to even after wins. I mean, you've, you obviously coach a bunch of finals games now as an assistant. Um, what is that process like on a day like today, you know, like between games three and four, especially when it's only the one day and it's kind of like a normal series instead of these thousand day gaps between the rest of the games. Like what is sort of the, what are those discussions like as you guys sit there and try to decide, you know, whether it's after a win or a loss, like, Hey, what, it, how are we going to, you know, either potentially stick with what we're going to do, or we are going to try to anticipate something that the other side's going to do and adjust for the next game like that. Yeah, the number one thing is the next day, how can we as a staff try our best to strip back all the emotion? Like if we're feeling good because we won, can we just not today? And if we're feeling (laughs) crappy because we lost, usually it's easier to be honest with yourself when something doesn't go well. But I think after a win, it is hard. It's dangerous. You know, I think that's another area where, you know, Coach Malone should get a lot of credit is like he said that after game one, like they got open looks they just didn't make them and so you have to be willing to go back and look at the the game with kind of a cold heart and just go you know we we've talked i've been on stats for where we've talked about you know it's hard because we all remember the game but it'd be fun to watch film where like when the ball leaves the shooter's hands it goes to the next play you don't know if it went in or not like are you okay with that play because we do get skewed by the result process like, over results yeah yeah and, and like we all say that right like we all are hunting that best we can but it's really hard to actually do mm-hmm. and so as a staff today you know both sides but in particular denver like they have to be super critical about themselves and you know the game maybe you know the thing about having great players is sometimes they do stuff at the end of the shot clock that yeah the possession ended up being a basket but that was bad offense like the guy's just really good And so, you know, Denver is definitely going through that process now of like trying to be as honest with themselves as they can on what actually happened in the game and what maybe was quote unquote lucky. When you mentioned you mentioned Michael going after his team a little bit after game one publicly saying that they give a bunch of open threes up. But there were certainly people in the league who wondered if he went a little overboard after game two when he really went after their effort. And, you know, said, look, we have to be way better than this. We shouldn't be talking about this in the finals. You obviously work for both Pop and 
Ime, guys who are not afraid to say things publicly. <laughs> um, what uh, what is the the line you have to walk? And obviously now you're a head coach and you have to think about this too. Like when you go to sit there after a game, like what is sort of the line to walk in terms of deciding when the right moment is to push a button like that publicly and you sort of knowing the feel of your team and having an idea of, you know, how that'll resonate with them or not. Yeah, I think what you just said is the most important piece. Like, do you feel like you have enough of a pulse of the team? You have those relationships on kind of the back end. You know, Pop is obviously somebody who publicly, and Ime as well, like you could be really hard on the team, but you, when you're in the gym every day and you're with around the team every day, you see like the love and care they're putting into the guys on the back end. And so it is, it, it's a risky thing to like speak to your team through the media. My assumption from what I do know of coach Malone is that he didn't say anything publicly that he didn't say directly to them in the locker room. I think that's so, a safe assumption. <laughs> like he said as much. Yeah. Yeah. In general, I would say if you're saying publicly what you're saying privately to them, you're safer, but there are also moments where you're really hard on the team privately. And then you go out publicly and you put on this different this different face of like, maybe you're taking the blame as a coach and you want to soften the blow for them. But obviously he's been with this group a long time. And in particular, he's been with Jamal Murray and mm -hmm. Jokic for a long time. And he knows those guys' personalities. You know, a lot of what happened in San Antonio when I was there was because of the personality, not just of Pop, but of Tim, Tony, and Manu. And like mm -hmm. Pop knew their personalities and he knew how to get them going uh Ime developed the same thing last year with the guys in boston like he knew what would resonate with the top guys on the team which not that you don't care about everybody but whatever you're going to do publicly it needs to fly with the top guys because that's just how these teams are set up and how they work um the top guys have the most influence you know malone actually brought up tim duncan uh, the other day and he, he brought up duncan as a comparison for joker and obviously not style of play, but that personality. He said he was never coached Duncan, but everything he knows, he was a selfless superstar was the words that he used. And he right. says Joker is in that same vein. Uh, do you see that comparison? And when you have a guy like that, who is the face of the franchise, what impact does that have, you know, throughout the organization and, and particularly in that locker room? Yeah, I can see the comparison for sure. You know, there's so many people in the league that say, like, I just want to win. And I just think that's total garbage. Um, it's like, <laughs> no, you like you just want to win if you're doing it the way you want to do it. Like you're yes. saying, and like I mean, like yes. which I is just want to win. Honest, so give me right? 25 shots. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I just want to win as long as I get X, Y, and Z. And like Tim just wanted to win. Mm -hmm. he really did like you saw the competitiveness every day he's trying to win every scrimmage in practice and i'm not just saying that like he really is and he's mad if he loses and the times that i've gotten to coach against Jokic, like he will do what the game tells him to do if the game tells him to pass 25 times in a row he will pass 25 times in a row if they leave him in one-on-one -on -one coverage and the game tells him to go score he will go score it's why he's so difficult to play against because he really is just trying to win and I think he do, obviously does th some of the similar stuff in the media. Like he's not really big on the attention. He's not a big social media person. That has some parallels to Tim as well. And I think when when that type of personality is the cornerstone of the franchise, it frees up the rest of the group, um, the coaches and the players. Because right or wrong, most 
teams are going to take on some element of the personality of your best player. And your coach is part of that as well. Like the best player and the coach and sometimes their relationship will then dictate kind of the temperature of the team throughout the season. So, you know, Pop obviously massive impact in San Antonio and he's the first person to say like it's nothing without. Mm -hmm. And I think Coach Malone would say the same thing. Like he's doing a fantastic job in Denver and he has and they've stuck with him because he's a really good coach. And like, we're seeing it now, like in the finals, the way he has adjusted the things he's doing, the way he talks to his team, he's a high level coach, but he would be the first person to say, yeah, and this isn't happening without Jokic. So I think the parallels are definitely there. It's, it's fun to, it's fun and hopeful to know that that's still out there, that it's not all about me, 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 that there are people that do just want to win even though more people say it than actually feel that way. You know, it's what we're striving for, right? Like it is, it, mm-hmm. I know that the NBA is entertainment. I know that there is, it is a profession. There is money on the line. We try not to hide from those things with our team. Like there are personal incentives that go along with some of this. And I get it. You're trying to take care of your family, like totally fine, but it is a team sport. Like it, it still is a team and we are still trying to win. And it's nice when you see guys have success that go about it the right way. And I think that's, you know, it'll be, Jokic is somebody that a lot of guys are going to look at and go, could I be 5% more like him? You know, Mm -hmm. no one can play like him, but can I embody some of like what he does and what that does for the rest of the team? Yeah, I agree. I think if, especially if you're a fan in Utah, Utah is not that much different from Denver, not just because of the mountains, Mm -hmm. but like market size, like you watched this Nuggets team essentially build through the draft. They made it a couple of shrewd trades and and uh, lower level free agent signings. That's what the hope, right? Like your hope yeah. is okay. Like you guys are building now. You have a couple of young guys. You've got a bunch of picks. You're going to hope to build. You had a, a good season. You shrewd trade for to get Lowry. Like this is the hope in the NBA, right? That that you can do it this way. That you don't have to be Los Angeles or Golden State where Kevin Durant wants to come or LeBron James wants to come. Um, that you can do it that way. Like to me, that's to me, Milwaukee, I've compared Milwaukee and, um, and Denver potentially now winning as a reason why you have hope in the NBA. Absolutely. And it's, it's a reminder, not, you know, Denver, but then also like you look at Miami, like they're, it's slapping us all in the face. Like this is a team sport. And like you can win at the highest level and get to the finals with a team. You know, I mean, Miami's in the play in. Nobody thought, but they, the way they play, the way they interact, the way they, everybody feels like they're a part of it, but everybody plays a role. It's not just a collection. Like I know Spo doesn't like the undrafted thing and I totally get why he doesn't, but it's not like a collection of these like giant name, massive contract guys that we just like paid all this money and we're way in the luxury tax. And like, this is how we're going to go about it. Like everybody's maximizing themselves um and the heat have done that for years and so you know this series is massively hopeful for us in utah and other markets like us of like you know yeah you you don't have to be one of the quote unquote like three or four massive markets in the nba to actually win like if you go about it the right way you make some good decisions in the draft and then you help them develop and you like you said make a couple of shrewd trades like you can win at the highest level so you know that's what we're trying to be like they did this series is fun to watch but i'm so antsy like i just i wish we were like playing it's hard to sit at home and and watch i feel like i'm like you know the kid looking over the fence like into the neighbor's yard like i want to play so yeah these this is a great model for us for sure well will 
congratulations again on a spectacular first season. And thanks for talking with us. Really enjoyed your perspective. You're like, you're really young. You're still the youngest. Are you still the youngest head coach or did Missoula get you? Missoula got you, right? Nice. Yeah, I think Joe got me. Uh, so you were like youngest head coach for like five months. Yeah. But like, despite being, you know, quote unquote young, you've seen a lot of stuff in the NBA. <laughs> you've been around, seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, very lucky. Yeah. So uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Enjoy your time with your family. Good luck in the draft and free agency. And uh, we'll see you soon. Appreciate it. See you guys at Summer League. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call or click ranger.com or just stop by. All right. Thanks to Will Hardy for stopping by. Uh, we've had some fun guests during the finals. Typically, we stay within the collective, but we do expand out a little bit. Well, well, um, he's, been, he's been really wanting to be part of the, the collective for a while now, so I'm glad we can make his dreams come true. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's been well, the highlight a- of his day. Well, those are great guys, you guys, as you guys heard. We hopefully have another good one on uh, on Monday, too. We'll see if it comes together as we hope. So we'll see. All right. Okay. So before we go, we should talk about the significant development in the last 24 hours, which is that it appears like Chris Paul's tenure with the Suns could be coming to an end. Now, I know there's different reporting out there. Um, what I will say from what Woj reported and what I've been told, the Suns did meet with Chris Paul on um wednesday they laid out what the their situation is nothing nothing none of it was a surprise to anybody chris paul's very shrewd he knew this was coming mm-hmm. um they basically have three options they can um guarantee his full contract by june 29th to take his guarantee from 15.8 to i think 30.2 million they can waive him and take the full 15.8 million on their books this year and he would be a free agent. The reason they would do that is that they would leave open the possibility of him to resign if he didn't like his choices elsewhere. Um, if they do that, if they waive him and uh, just take the full hit on their books this year, they would get their salaries down where they would have the taxpayer mid-level exception. So what is that, Bontemps? Like $7 million? Around $7 million ish Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if they waive and stretch him, which is they <clears throat> waive him and then stretch the money they owe to him over the course of five seasons, uh, they would actually be able to clear enough room that they could use the full mid-level exception, which is about $11 million and the biannual exception of 4.5 million. But the idea of bringing him back is not on the table in that regard. Right. So they, they can, and the, and the real issue here is with the new rules, um, they're going to have four guys who make over $30 million, Aiton, Chris Paul, uh, Booker Durant. Um, it really hamstrings them. And so 
they, I think, explained to Chris that there was a decent possibility that he was going to get waived. They could trade Aiton between now and June 29th. Right. They could make another move that would make having Chris at $30 million make more sense. But let's just be honest. In all likelihood, he's going to get waived because I just said it opens up the possibility for them to add players, including maybe even keep him and add a player. Right. And the other thing, he's not a $30 million player. Anymore. Yeah, that's sort of the low-key part of this whole discussion is that he just wasn't all that good last season. And there, well, he was this fine, is, but he wasn't a $30 million player. He wasn't, right. He wasn't Chris Paul anymore. He was just yeah. a, a nice point guard. He's, he, he, he's 38 years old, obvious durability issues. And when I was in Phoenix during the West semifinals, the conversations that I was having were, you know, obviously he's hurt during that series, but essentially they were going to explore ways of, hey, can we turn CP3 into maybe a couple of quality role players? And, you know, as you said, maybe one of those role players is him plus who they can get on an exception. But that's what makes the idea of, Waving and stretching, interesting, because, you know, you say, well, hold on, you're losing them for nothing. But, Wendy, as you point out, what you're doing there is creating a couple of salary slots where you can add players. Well, and now, this we'll just this. during the playoffs, as you know, McMahon, I covered the first round series, you covered mm-hmm. the second round series. Devin Booker was kind of their point guard. Yeah. For a and lot we of talked time. about it last night. Like, who was the Miami Heat's point guard when they beat the Mavericks in 06? It was essentially Dane, Dwayne Wade. You know, James Harden actually officially became a point guard. I think Devin Booker is kind of, it's heading that way with him. The risk there is, boy, you're asking an awful lot of him, but he's going to have the ball in his hands an awful lot. And then when he doesn't, KD will. Yeah. I just, I just think this whole thing underscores how tight a spot Phoenix is in. They traded mm-hmm. everything they had to get Kevin Durant, which obviously is an understandable thing to do. But those four guys, as you point out, Brian, they make more than the salary cap next season. If you have Chris Paul on the team, that's why all this is being discussed. Even if Chris Paul was at Chris Paul level still, you'd have to wonder if that was sustainable given the restrictions that are coming to these teams. And we spent the whole playoffs talking about how Phoenix's depth was not good enough. And if they have all four of those guys on their books, they have very few ways to meaningfully upgrade the rest of that roster. And you just look at Denver and them going into next season. It's hard to make any real argument that Denver wouldn't beat them again if they have a similar assortment of players coming back. And when you're talking about Kevin Durant entering his late 30s with a pretty limited window to try to win with him, this is the summer where they've got to try to find a way to upgrade this roster. And whether that's finding a trade for DeAndre Ayton, which I think is going to be a lot easier said than done, or finding a way to maximize what they can get out of Chris or that salary slot. It, it just really speaks to what I think is just a really tight box that they're in to try to get this team to the level of these other super elite teams because there's just very little on the roster that you like outside that top end talent. So, so if not, thing, if I'm sorry, go ahead, Wendy. I, you know, if Chris called, if Chris Paul becomes a free agent, there's obviously mm-hmm. going to be quite a few teams interested. Um, I talked to a couple I, last night that were interested just at the possibility of it. I find it hard to believe that Chris at this point in his life, based on what I know about him, would not want to be near his family right? Um, who are in LA. And so if it's not LA, either the Lakers or Clippers, both of them have free agent point guards uh, that they may or may not keep. I think coming to back to Phoenix is on the table. I know that there are other teams yeah. that would be great for him. I just, I, I would say this is ironclad. I would just, knowing what I know about Chris, I would be surprised if he doesn't want to be very close to his family. Right. And that's what I was going to ask. If not Phoenix, which again, even if he is waived, as long as he's not stretched, is still a possibility. 
then where? And, and, and you answer that because it, it, it's a couple things. And I think in this order, family and what is the one thing that Chris Paul is missing basketball-wise that he desperately wants? Well, he's uh, winning a title. Yeah. So yeah. like we can talk about Chris Paul as a, you know, like I saw somebody on Twitter talking about CP3 in San Antonio. Like, hey, he'd be an awesome mentor for that young group. But like, why does that make sense for Chris Paul at this stage of his career? No way. No way. <laughs> it, I, think, just... I think the place that makes sense is the Lakers. D'Angelo Russell isn't good enough. We saw that in the playoffs. You sign if Chris Paul's willing to play on a minimum in Phoenix, let's say, let's say that's on the table, right? We talked about how the Lakers have some limitations financially, even if they bring back their guys. Like I think he's an I think even at this point, he's a pretty clear upgrade to me on D'Angelo Russell in the playoffs. And if you have Chris Paul on that team, you finally have all the banana all the banana guys will have then play with LeBron officially well, and he gets to go back home. I think he points something out. He is it he does have injury issues that happen all the time in the playoffs. Just keep in mind that he would not be a $30 million player. When you sign a guy to a minimum right. contract, your expectation of him is different. I don't know how he would play with LeBron, to be honest with you. Here's Talk what about I'll two say. alpha males, alpha well, but, dogs. But, <laughs> but think about it, though. He's, and he's done he, it. He, he, listen, there were the same questions. This is when he was in his prime. How's he going to play with James Harden? I understand that thing went south in year two. In year one, though, they had the most wins in the league, and Chris Paul played off the ball other than when, you know, he's running the second unit and thrived. And like, look, at this point, Chris Paul doesn't need to have the ball in his hands all the time. That's probably asking too much. I think he's, he's can be a very effective spot up shooter, secondary playmaker. Now I think the biggest drop off for CP three has been, he's like, he was an all defensive guy for a long time. And now he's a guy you've got to give, like, you got to kind of hide defensively, but, in doing in giving him the easiest assignment, he's going to communicate like a madman, like to the point where guys maybe get tired of hearing his voice. And you he's think? never he's not going to blow assignments. He's not going to fall no. asleep defensively and kill you on that end. Which let's just be honest, that is a pretty drastic difference from the guy that they had starting at point guard throughout the playoffs until they pulled the plug on him in Game Four. Well, and uh, if you're having him- finals. Well, and if you're having him run your second unit, right, and basically being your point guard when LeBron's on the court, not on the court, what's he going to be doing? He's going to be running pick and rolls with Anthony Davis, who can serve as a backline anchor to make up for some of those defensive issues, right? So again, like if you're talking about spending 18, 20, 25 million on D'Angelo Russell, or in theory, having, you know, Chris Paul on a minimum with some other options to supplement him around that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's much of a question to me as to what I think would be the better path forward. But again, well, what, what, we're a long well, ways away from that happening. What if you're the Clippers and you've you've got Russ who wants to come back and you've got Chris Paul? I mean, I think Chris okay. Let, let's see a better let, fit, but let's see if Russ wants to come back at that price first. All right, fair it's enough. a good what uh, if. It's a good what if. Okay, well, we'll see. Lots there's by the way, the stuff I can just tell you stuff's heating up in the league. This finals, we still got to see what the Miami Heat. Can, if you count them out. I don't, I can't, I can't help you if you count them out. Right. Uh, I won't be, but there's stuff in the league starting to heat up. The, uh, the phones are ringing, uh, stuff starting to go. So the off season's on the, on the cusp of happening and there's going to be action. And Chris Paul's just the first of many dominoes. Uh, we'll be covering it all here on the hoop collective. Um, before I go, I want to tell you that look out after the finals for our NBA season recap episode sponsored by Granger for the ones who get it done. Like Tim Bontemps in New York. Like Jackson and Bruce, our producers, like Will Hardy, thank you for joining us from uh, the Jazz and Mr. McMahon.
wait, I don't get it done. Adios, amigos. 